Scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put in your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Uh, welcome again to Mosaic and happy Father's Day to those of us who are fathers. Great to see you all. So glad to have you here today. Uh, as you can see, we're moving through the book of Revelation and we're looking at, as you can see from the reading, a series of letters that Jesus himself writes to some of the early churches. And this is particularly fascinating because, you know, in the New Testament, we get all sorts of letters from people, individuals like Peter, James, and John written to churches. But here in Revelation, we actually get letters pinned or in a sense transcribed from the mouth of Jesus. And so uh, we get these seven letters to these seven churches in what's now Western Turkey. And what's so incredible about this is that while each church gets one letter addressed to them, in a sense, all the churches get all the letters. And you can see that from what Jesus concludes each letter with repeatedly. He says, verse 22, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to who? The churches, yeah. In other words, he's saying, what I'm saying to one, I'm really intending to be a help to all. What I'm saying to this group of Christians here is helpful for Christians there. Or another way of putting it for us would be, what Jesus said to them is still for us today. And if we see it like that, which we should, the fruit that it yields for us is amazing. So let's ask, what do we see for us today as a church, right? Jesus, uh, you know, what do you see in us today? What's for us today as a church in these letters? We're going to see three things right here from these letters. First, we're going to see 
what Jesus loves. Don't know if you've ever, if you've ever asked, well, what, is, what does Jesus really love about a church? We're going to see that. Two, what does Jesus hate or what Jesus hates? And third, how we can be more of what he loves. So what he loves, what he hates, how we can be more of what he loves. You all ready? Yeah, here we go. Number one, let's see what Jesus loves. A, a moment ago, we read these two letters, actually the last two letters of the seven from chapter three. And the next to last letter, which we're going to look at first, was the letter written to the church. I don't know if you caught the name of the city. Did you catch that? Yeah, it was uh, West Philadelphia. I think it says born and raised, right? The playgrounds where they spent most of their days maxing, relaxing, Wait, wait, hang on. That's not it? All right, sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. This is too easy. I'm betraying my Gen X background. But anyway, yeah, it's, to the, it's, to the, it's a letter to the church in Philly, Philadelphia. And what's so fascinating about this letter is that in contrast to the other six, which all have some sort of critique or something kind of negative said about them, this letter... It's only positive. It's only all good, man. It's all positive. No critique, just encouragement. So we should ask, well, what was going on here? What was going on in this church that Jesus loved? Another way of putting it would be to ask, what are the marks of a church that Jesus loves? What what would Jesus say he loves in a church? Would come with him and say, you know what? You got real good parking. That's what I'm after. Right? I mean, your facility, spotless. Right? No. Yeah, well, let's see. What are the marks of a church that Jesus loves? First and foremost, first, the first characteristic is that there's radical, here's the word, exclusivity. No one said amen. Yeah, that's a real unpopular word. That's all right. We'll, we'll get to a part that you love, I hope, in a minute. But look at this. You've got to catch this. He says, you have kept, what does it say? My word and have not denied my name. Now, the Romans and the early Christian, uh, uh, Christians, excuse me, in the early Roman Empire, uh, they were uh, under extreme pressure to cave to their culture, to deny that Jesus was the only way to God, to ig- deny that exclusive belief, and they were threatened with death unless they recanted their exclusive claim, right? That's what's going on here. But they refused to back down from their exclusive claim that Jesus was the only way to God. And for that, for the refusal to deny him, Jesus says, I see you, I honor you, I affirm you. Now, if you're here, a friend drug you here, maybe you're a skeptic, not a Christian from another faith background, and you hear that, you're like, oh, that's really hard. And listen, I get it. The exclusive claims of Jesus... It can be hard to hear. You know, whenever I hear exclusive truth claims from other faith systems, that, that can be hard for me to hear, too, whenever I hear uh, Muslims say, for example, that Jesus is not the Son of God, when they make that exclusive claim, or when Buddhists make the exclusive claim that, you know, that God is essentially unknowable, or when Hindus make the exclusive claim that there are really millions, maybe more, of gods to be worshipped, or when atheists make the exclusive claim that there is no God at all, well, yeah, that can be hard to hear here I get it but 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 and consider this every community makes exclusive claims because that's what makes it a community right now just because someone makes a truth claim doesn't mean it's right or true or correct but the point is they've got a right to make it because every community makes exclusive claims so if you're here and you're especially critical especially skeptical of Christians or Jesus the Bible because it makes exclusive claims and you don't like that let me just say to you respectively uh, respectfully excuse me uh, as the guy with the mic right consider the very real hypocrisy 
of making the exclusive claim that exclusive claims are all bad and wrong. Exclusivity is just how any community works, including your own. But more than that, for the Christian person today, Revelation 3 is showing you that the exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the, and the only way to God, that's actually what brings his blessing. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, in the United States today, and maybe you've, you've heard this or read about this in newspaper reports, you know, the demise of the church is widely predicted, like it's scheduled for Saturday. Like people at reports say, man, if you believe the news, man, the church is going to end next Tuesday, right? It's just that bad. And people are moving away from the church in record numbers, the report goes. And listen, I'm not saying everything is okay. I'm not saying everything is fine. But what I am saying is that in those reports on the news, you've got to consider, number one, who's giving it. But more importantly, number two, to read the fine print. Look at who and what and why are being interviewed because the vast majority of those leaving churches are leaving churches who do not make radical claims about the exclusivity of Jesus. The majority of people who are leaving are leaving, for the most part, mainline denominational churches who let go of the word and the name. That's what they've let go of. But by contrast, the churches which are at least remaining steady or are growing like ours are primarily those who do the two things that the church in Philadelphia was commended for. They do hold to the word. They hold to the authority of scripture and to the name of Jesus as the name above every name. And they believe even more than that, as we do, that the God of the Bible is a God who still does miracles and works supernaturally today. So the question is, this is forcing us to ask is, will we be a church, we're going to say yes, that holds to the word and the name? See, many times churches say they believe if we let go of the word, if we let go of the name, if we just let go of the exclusive claim of Jesus, if we let go of the authority of scripture, we'll be more relevant and therefore will grow. Oh, but the studies are showing you the opposite. Actually, it works the other way. Because after all, if they're hearing me, church, if there's nothing different about us, if we just make the same claims, live the same way our culture does, if we're just living like that, then if there's no difference, why bother? Why bother at all? Why bother gathering? If we're just this nice social club who does nice stuff and believes like everyone else, why bother? See, a radically exclusive church, that is, a church that holds to the word and the name, is a church that Jesus loves. That's the first mark. Second mark here, though at the same time, there's also... Some of you like this better, I hope. <laughs> Radical inclusivity as well. Radical inclusivity. Look at verse 9, and let me try to help you with this. It's a tough verse. Verse 9 says, Jesus writes, says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Well, what's this? Oh, this is Jesus saying, acknowledging, yes, 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 church. I see there are people who have hurt you, right? There are people who have persecuted you. They're liars. They're not good people. And Jesus is saying, but I'm bringing them into your church. You're welcome. You're welcome, right? These are people maybe you've had a hard time with. They've hated you. Maybe you've even hated them, right? They're from another ethnic background like these people, another faith system. But Jesus says, oh, oh, I'm going to reveal myself to them and they are going to be my people as well. 
There's an African history professor, Yale University, brilliant dude named Dr. Lamensana. He's written a tremendous book you should all read called Whose Religion is Christianity? The Gospel Beyond the West. And in it, he convincingly makes a case that Christianity has been, from the beginning, the most inclusive faith system the world's ever seen. Let me show you what he says. He points out an obvious contrast between Christianity and every other faith system, which is that every other faith system, no matter how old it is, still has a cultural center, cultural epicenter, it has never moved beyond. Take, for example, Islam. 96% of all Muslims live still in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, right where it started. The same goes for other major world religions. Almost 90% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India and South Asia. But he notes when you get to Christianity, by contrast, oh, you got something totally different. There's no, it's a faith system that has no cultural center, yet began in one place, but it's always migrated here, there, and everywhere, to quote the Beatles, right? I mean, it's gone to Europe, it's gone to North America, South America, now back around the globe, to Asia, to Africa. Uh, look at this, South Korea. Korea, for example, has become 50% Christian in the last 100 years. And China is on its way to doing the same. 25% of all Christians are in Central and South America in the Caribbean. Come on, Caribbean folks, where are you? 22% of Christians are in Africa, 15% in Asia, and only 12% of all the Christians in the world live in North America. So I'll ask you, like La Mansana asks you, Whose religion, whose faith is it? It's everyone's. It's everyone's. Why? Because it's not built around an exclusive language, an exclusive culture, but around an inclusive person who has migrated, immigrated from heaven to earth, who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. If anyone is hungry, let him come to me. The church that Jesus loves has, is marked by radical inclusivity as well. But third, there's also radical mission. What's this? What's mission? You notice, of course, in the passage, Jesus keeps talking about doors, like this revolving door, open shuts, open shuts. It's like the guy in Elf, right? Keeps going round and round with the open shut door deal. But look what he says. He says, see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What's this? Well, the city of Philadelphia was designed by location, by infrastructure to be Here it is, a doorway to the world, a gateway to the world. It was built on the edge of the Roman Empire. The major highway ran through it, and it was designed to export Greek and Roman culture around the world. And so Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, you know that doorway, that door thing everybody's always talking about? Oh, that's for you to go through as well. That's for you to export me. I've got an open door for you, a mission for you in the world that's from me. You don't exist for you. You've got a mission. Now, uh, I'll show you what I mean. Uh, I had a, had a conversation recently with the, with the man who was running for state representative, state congress, and he had been out. Uh, I met him because he had been out campaigning uh, in the community, had met some of our folks at Mosaic, this diverse group of folks, and he was asking, well, man, well, well what can you know, pull this group together? They say, you, you know, you, you just call the church. And so he looked this up on the website, as some of you have done as well. And he picked up a phone and he called, as some of you have done as well. And he asked to meet, and so I said, sure. And when I met him, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, why did you want to connect? And he said, well, he said, it's beginning to dawn on me the kind of good that churches can do in the community. And I said, yes, that's correct. 
And he asked about the kind of stuff that we do here. And so I began to describe for him the more than the, more than the, the, the decade of, of caring for orphans in San Luis Potosi, Mexico, which was amazing because, as it turns out, he had been there many times. And so we talked about both the beauty, the poverty of the city, and then I, I began to talk to him about how we do, uh, you know, how we serve and love the homeless in, in our community, how we love at-risk kids here in local elementary and middle schools, and how we, you know, we host uh, conversations on race and diversity in our, in our community. And he said, wow. And I said, I know. Wow. It's really great. You know? And, but I said, I looked at him and I said, do you know something? I said, if suddenly all the churches here in the city went away, I said, listen, I know almost every pastor up and down here, they're all doing amazing things, helping, serving their community. I said, if all of that went away, if the city decided it did not want the church of Jesus anymore, I said, what do you think would happen to all the good, the collective good that churches do? I said, now it's possible if we all went away that some of it would get picked up by individuals here and there. But I said, I don't think so. I think that most of it would just be dispersed and go away entirely. He said, you're probably right. I said, but do you know then why we do what we do? He said, why? I said, here's why. Because we're commanded to. Because we're commanded to. I said, it's not just because we're nice people, although I hope we're nice. I I think you're nice. You're not. You look nice today anyway. You know, because we're nice. No, that's not it. We do this because we have been commanded. And when you have, therefore, at the core of your mission, a man who not only dies for his enemies, but gives away what he has on behalf of those who do not, that's just going to shape you. That's going to change how you live in the world and how our church looks. And he says, yeah, thank you for the one amen. I thought that was pretty good. But anyway, all right, I'm working hard for you up here. He said, wow, I never heard it put like that. I said, well, now you have. See, a, a church that Jesus loves has a radical mission. Let me talk about ours for a moment because we are also on a mission to change the city and to change the way even people view and see the church because uh, I don't think that city just needs another church, although I'm grateful for every church that's being started and planted here. I think the city needs another kind of a church, a church that isn't politically liberal or politically conservative, but it's politically engaged across the spectrum full of people who are salt and light, a church that's socially conscious that expresses the gospel in word and indeed a church that's intentionally diverse and can change people's lives through relationship a church that has a plurality of leadership to model something for the congregation a church that loves both the grace of god and the holiness of god a church that doesn't say its focus is either going to be the unchurched people over here or the church people over here but a church that can minister to both a church that is both passionate and deep where you don't have to check your emotions or your brain at the door. A church that has the fireplace of church history and the fire of the Holy Spirit in it. A church that is current. Oh, but it's not current events driven because it has an eternal focus and aim to it. See, not just another church, another kind of a church altogether. That's the kind of church I hope, I know I want to be a part of. And there they are. Radical exclusivity, radical inclusivity, radical mission. Three marks of a church that Jesus loves and that loves Jesus. There are others for sure here. Endurance Jesus commends, faithfulness he commends. But these three stand out for us today. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Second, let's look at what Jesus hates here. Let's sort of flip the script for a moment and and look at this. uh, You know, by contrast, again, to every other letter, which all the other six have something good, a healthy, 
patted on the back for. Here in this final letter to the church in Laodicea, there's only bad news, man. It's only negative, nothing positive. And, and by the way, if you were thrown by that word hate there, think about it for a second. You hate stuff, right? You hate stuff that, that maybe hurts you, hurts the people that you love, that, that breaks the world. So let's not deny for Jesus emotionally what you demand for yourself emotionally. Amen. But here, oh, Jesus hates something so much. And the thing that he hates is so pervasive in the church of Laodicea. It's overtaken anything good about it. But what I want you to see is that as, as challenging as Jesus is here, he also comes like a good doctor that cares for a patient, like a doctor that hates the cancer inside a patient and so moves to do some surgery that's incisive and goes deep. Jesus is, we're about to see, acting like a good physician who diagnoses the cancer and then prescribes the cure. So what's the one thing Jesus hates above all here? Well, he tells you in a word, it's lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. So verse 15, look at this. Hey, you know, yeah, it doesn't sound good. I know. Uh, verse 15 says, I know your deeds. Here's Jesus. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, there it is again, I am about to spit you out and literally vomit you out of my mouth. So you say, oh, I don't want to do that, neither do I. So let's ask, well, what is that? What is spiritual lukewarmness? Well, the opposite of it, the contrast is given in verse 19. Jesus says, so be earnest and repent. What does he desire? Well, it says to be earnest. You think that's kind of weak? Yeah, because that doesn't really get it. The, the Greek word here for earnest is the word zeloo, where we get our word zealous, in which some of your translations may say. In other words, the opposite of lukewarmness is zeal for God. And you say, well, you know, that makes sense. Oh, but hear me. It's much more than that. Because this word is also even more often translated in the Bible as jealous jealous. Jesus is saying, be jealous and repent. You think that's weird. Isn't jealousy something you're not supposed to do or, you know, to repent of? Why is this? But think about it. Oh, I love it. What's jealousy at its core, huh? Jealousy is something you feel on the inside of you, something that explodes on the inside of you. When you want something, when you want a thing, it's a a jealousy is maybe is what happens. Uh, It's what you feel when you see pictures of your friends or those people on vacation again, right? You're on social media, you think, how many times can those people, that family, go on vacation in a calendar year? They're on the beach, they're on the mountains, they're overseas, Europe, Africa, Asia. You're like, can you just stay home for once? Why can't I go on a vacation? Oh, wait. You're feeling jealousy, right? You want a thing. I want that. Or maybe somebody gets a promotion and it wasn't you. It should have been maybe. Yeah. Whether you deserve it or not, they got it. Something explodes on the inside of you. Uh, Or maybe somebody got married. Your friend got married and it should have been you. Probably should have been you, but it wasn't. And you're the, you're the, the, the maid of honor or best man again, right? And your heart goes there and explodes because you think I want that. But Jesus is saying, oh, that's what he wants for you in a relationship with him. Fire, heat, passion, jealousy for him. Something exploding on the inside of you to want him more than anything. And so when something, therefore, comes into your life, into your heart, 
that seeks to diminish your passion, to steal your zeal for him in the same way then that husbands or wives would move against someone to try to take their spouse away from them. That's what he is after. Let me tell you, somebody tries to move in on my wife? You try to move in on Carrie? Let me tell you something. She's back there. She's holding babies right now, loving them. Try to move in on her? Oh, you're going to get 165 pounds of power coming right at you. Right. What happened? Just telling you. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Jesus is saying that's what a heart that's hot for him looks like. Zeal, jealousy for him moves everything to the margins. You're saying, well, okay, yeah, I I get that. I get the hot part. What about the cold deal? Why would he say it's better to be cold, right, than lukewarm? And here's what I think. You know, after doing campus ministry, talking to college students for years, let me tell you something. I would much rather spend my time, go out on that college campus, and talk to someone who's a skeptic, an atheist, who knows they're cold, far from God, who thinks Christianity is like a joke or a scam or pointless altogether, rather than someone who's just been raised in a church, been around church, but then decides, you know what? Man, my weekend is better spent just watching TV. I deserve that. I mean, I, get, I deserve my Sundays off, read the Bible, know that. I know the stories, right? That's for crazy people to go, you know, they think, I'm not like those crazy people at that crazy, you know, mosaic church. People get all excited during worship, you know. I'm respectable, right? So people want to get involved with the church. Right? I mean, like, give their money. It's crazy. You know, go regularly. Like, good for them. And so they shrug at Jesus, shrug at Jesus. But see, if you're cold, in a way, hear me, you're closer to Jesus because you're having a more authentic reaction to him. You see him for who he is, truly, for who he claims to be. Lord, master, God, boss, the ruler of everything, and he demands everything from you. And so, you know, I mean, I don't want that. And so you walk away. And and here's why that's, that's closer to who he is, because that's how people responded to him when he walked the earth. People, when Jesus lived, they loved him or they hated him, but no one was indifferent. No one was indifferent. That's why they killed him, right? Not because they were shrugging at him, but because they hated him, right? See, when you see who Jesus is rightly, there's no grounds for indifference. You can love, you can hate, but you can't shrug. See, it's indifference to Jesus in your life more than anything that will kill, steal, and put to death your faith in the faith of a church. And no one knew this better, by the way. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who himself wrote a letter to churches, really a letter to the public, but also to churches, he wrote a letter, a letter from Birmingham jail, and he talked about the debilitating effects of spiritual lukewarmness on the heart and the lives of Christians and churches. And in 1963, from jail, he wrote this, quote, I have almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not, as he puts it, the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order, quote-unquote, than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. 
There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer. It recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated, right? Jealous, zealous, than to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But he goes on to say, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church is turned into outright disgust. Now that's hard to hear, not just for church members, but for leaders like me as well. Let me just apply this, though, in a way that's maybe tough. And some of you here I know are are parents. And you you come here, you bring your kids because you think, I want my kids to serve God. But let me tell you, do you know what I think just about guarantees what, what they won't serve God for? Or guarantees they won't serve God? It's your lukewarmness, if that's you. It's your refusal to stand up for the least of these. Like Dr. King saying, your refusal to condemn racism. Listen, your children know if you really love Jesus... Or if it's a sham and a scam and thin. You understand? Jesus isn't just here for you to bring your kids so you can keep them off drugs. Right? Right. Just so, you know, she won't get pregnant until she's married. No. Jesus is for you. Your heart. So what keeps a person lukewarm? Jesus tells us. Look at verse 17. He says, you say, here it is, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. Don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I'm just going to say, it's about to get tough for a minute. Remember a moment when you were clapping and you liked the early part. All right. Remember that part. Laodicea, in its day, was one of the wealthiest cities of its day. It was so wealthy that in 60 AD, when an earthquake rocked its corner of the Roman Empire, almost every city around it called for and received financial aid from the Roman Empire. Every city except for Laodicea. They were wealthy. They were rich. They did not need a thing and came to see themselves as their own savior. So what Jesus is saying here is that there's a massive gap between how they saw themselves and how he saw them. They thought they were respectable. Jesus says, no, you're wretched. They thought they were wealthy. Jesus says, no, you're poor. Laodicea was a medical center. It was famous for its doctors and eye doctors. But Jesus says, you think you can see, but you're blind. Laodicea was a textile center, famous for its luxurious black wool that clothed its citizens. But Jesus says, you're not clothed, you're naked. You see, he's saying it's wealth above all that contributes to lukewarmness how you use it, how you see it. It's not just having stuff, because if having stuff made you, you know, anti-God, listen, God would be anti-God. He owns it all, right? But it's how you use it, how you see it. Jesus put it like this. This is hard. He said, oh, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through like a little needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Another way of saying this, he said, it'd be easier 
to fit a 747 in your garage than for a rich person to live like a Christian. Why? Because in a way, the temptation is always to say, oh, I'm fine on my own education, wealth, you know, first world, North America, United States. We're living in a way in Laodicea ourselves. One of the blessings of being a part of a global spiritual family like we're a part of here is that, you know, I get access to missionaries. I get access to pastors all over the world. And then when they come here and I get to talk with them, you know, they say, you know, they notice in the lives of American pastors, American Christians, two things in particular. They're actually appalled at. Number one is the actual prayerlessness they see in Christians' lives the lack of prayer, and second, the degree to which churches and individuals spend their money on themselves. Houses, kids, clothes, swimming pools, cars, vacations, rinse and repeat. You say, are you talking to me? Kind of like, you know, Travis Bickle, taxi driver. Are you talking to me? You know, maybe if the shoe fits. But it's also talking to me as well. Of course, my life here is where my heart goes. You say, I'm really offended. I bet they were as well, right? There was a vast gap between how they saw themselves, how Jesus saw them, and Jesus saying, in the gap between how you see yourself and how you really are is your money. It's your wealth. Now, that's tough. But what I want you to see is that in the middle of this, in the middle of their offense, and maybe you're steamed right now, and you got the courage, thankfully, to stay in your seat. What I want you to see, though, is how much Jesus loved them. He loved him. Look how he concludes this. He doesn't say, those whom I hate, I drop kick between the goalposts of life. No, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He loved them. He loves you. He loves us today. See, in one of this, in the middle of this searing challenge, we're about to get one of the most mind-blowing exhortations, moments of comfort Jesus gives in all the Bible. And what he says next shows them shows us how we can be cured, how we, number three, finally, how we can become more of what he loves. Verse 20. He said, not, I'm way apart from you, over there. And he says, here I am. I'm right next to you. I stand at the door. I'm knocking. If anybody hears my voice, and if you just open the door, I'll come in, eat with that person, and they with me. Oh, see, just when you think he's going to keep his distance, just when you think he's had enough, he just says, I want to move closer toward you. I want to come all the way into your life. See, table fellowship, eating with someone was the height of personal relationship in that culture. He's saying, I want to come in, hang out with, kick it with, eat it with, be with, speak to you even though you've treated me like this. How can we do that? He gives you four brief metaphors. First, he says, oh, I counsel you. I'm telling you, you got to buy gold from me, refine in the fire, so you can really be rich. Oh, he's saying, listen, he's saying, you got to make me your wealth. He's saying, you got to make Jesus himself your wealth, him your riches. And do you know why he can do this? Here's why. It's because he made you his riches. He made you his treasure. He made us his special treasure. He gave up everything for us so we could be his he says, I, I counsel you, get white clothes for me so you won't be naked. Listen, white was the color of Roman culture for victory. He's saying you can have victory over shame, over maybe what you've done, how you've lived. To come to know him means in that moment, his righteousness 
covers you. You experience his presence, his pleasure, his love. It changes you. Third, he says, get eye salve from me so you can see. And maybe some of you, I hope, are feeling like the, some light is coming on somewhere. If that's you, let me just encourage you. Just pray right now. Say, Jesus, would you turn the light on? Would you help me to see you? And here's why. It's because he was blinded for you on his way to the cross. He was blindfolded. He was mocked. They, they spit on him, right? And they said, oh, prophesy, Christ. You know, who hit you? He was experiencing blindness so we can see and lastly he says if you want to know me you're hearing my voice he said all you got to do like a little child just open the door turn the handle if anyone opens here's my voice they open the door he said i'll come in where are you today with jesus will you open the door if anyone has an ear Let him hear, let him, her hear what the Spirit says to the churches.